0: it's time to elevate your snacking game with Wonderful Pistachios. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Brown Girl Self-Care Podcast. My name is Bree Mitchell. I'm the host of the show, as well as the founder of Brown Girl Self-Care. Brown Girl Self-Care was designed specifically for Black women to just help us to get to where the healing resides as we exist in a world that does not prioritize our humanity. So today, I actually have a guest Her name is Brianna Holt. She's an author, a writer, um, probably a billion things, but a reporter, a writer, an author. And she wrote this book, In Our Shoes, which I had the opportunity to read. It's In Our Shoes. Let me read the whole thing. On Being a Young Black Woman in Not-So-Post-Racial America. This book, y'all, is amazing, especially since I think I'm Gen X. So this was a really good read. So before we get started,
1: Brianna, first of all, welcome. Please introduce yourself and tell us more about you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, Yeah, as you mentioned, my name is Brianna. Um, I hail from Dallas, Texas, but I currently live in New York City. Um, Been out here for about five or six years now. And yeah, this is my first book. It's my debut book, but not my first time writing. Um, I've written about Identity and race, and more specifically, Black woman identity and Black womanhood um, for various publications like the New York Times, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, GQ. Um, and so, yeah, it was time to put this all together um, into a manuscript, into a book, because a lot of these uh, topics that I covered in this book were things that I was recovering individually in articles and in think pieces. Mm
0: why did you write this book in our shoes? Like, I know there has to be a reason where you're like, you know what? Nah, we're going to write a book about this. What what was that for you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, there was a very specific moment um, when I realized that a book like this was needed. I was in quarantine in Dallas, Texas at my mom's house, and this was during the height of COVID, so nothing was going on. Um, I was literally just writing my little stories in bed. And then we'd watch Netflix every night and then start the day over just over and over again. Um, and so I would read the drafts of these articles out loud to my mother, um, the articles that I was writing at the time. And my mom, who is a Black woman of the boomer generation, I realized there were so many things that I was talking about that she did not understand. And she'd be like, well, what is black fishing?" Or what, what do you mean cultural appropriation or, um, you know, or I didn't, is that really an issue? Like my mom really had this belief that um, because she's in the Boomer generation and, blame, and racism was much more blatant when she was growing up, um, she had this idea, like a lot of liberals, um, that we are living in a post-racial America, post-racial society. She wasn't really aware of like the issues that young black women are dealing with and how prevalent they are. And so it was like, no, I need to write about this. This definitely needs to exist as a book um, so that people, so that young black women can have something to hand to other people to explain our situations also so they don't have to do the work themselves.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things that stood out for me. And actually, I I told you I have notes. So that was one of the things that I wrote down. So I'm glad that you uh, mentioned, mentioned that, excuse me. And by the way, this book covers so many topics. I mean, from stolen Black girl innocence to colorism to being super, super woman, a strong Black woman, adultification, um, appropriation, virtue signaling, what else, uh, Black fishing, white tears being weaponized. Like, when I tell you that- <laughs> covers everything or a lot of things from the Ruta to the Tuta on just I just felt really even though again I am from a different generation than you obviously just a, a lot of the things that you were saying in the book I was just like yeah you know what I mean like I feel like I still like maybe because I'm in between generations I think mm-hmm. I have my feet in both worlds, kind of, sort of, if that makes sense. You're also
1: plugged in, you know, you're also in media, you know, you're in media. I think it it can also depend what industry you're into, or if you're someone who's online or not online um, as well. So I think you're seeing a lot of these things that I'm discussing that maybe, you know, older black women who are, or of different generations who aren't online or plugged in in that way, aren't really aware of. Yeah. I'm
0: glad you said that because there was a part in the book where you were talking about the differences between maybe like the older population versus kind of like your generation maybe, and obviously younger. Um, and I was kind of like, I kind of like clutched my pearls a little bit because <laughs> I was like, in my mind, and, I'm, and that's why I'm, I, I love to learn. And I love to learn different perspectives because this is, this is a part of my healing journey and it helps me to learn mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So when you're saying some of the things, like I couldn't, it didn't, re- it didn't resonate with me. But I'm glad that you said that, because you're right. There are, when I think about Black people, I know that we're not just like this one person, for example. But when I think about Black, especially Black women, I'm like, we all know about this stuff.
1: We mm. all know about, you know what I
0: mean? But you're right, especially the older generations. Or if you're not dialed in you know, to different parts of just like internet, Wi-Fi, online, TikTok, like all this other stuff, you're right. Your perspective
1: is going to be different. Yeah. 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 It made me think of cultural appropriation for sure. Um, With my mom, when I was bringing that to her, she said, what do you mean cultural appropriation? And I was just like, first I just, I was like, my mom is not woke then. Like, how are you a black woman? You don't know what cultural appropriation means. And I realized, no, when she was growing up, they were trying to, you know, it was more so about being able to fit in and there, there weren't necessarily white people, first of all, there was not social media and there weren't white people who are tanning their skin, getting lip fillers, using AAVE, like all these things to try to make themselves, um, portray themselves as ambiguous or black or biracial. And mm-hmm. so, no, my mom isn't aware of this level of cultural appropriation that we have. She's aware of like Elvis Presley, you know, going to clubs and taking songs, but not this new version, this heightened version that we're dealing with that's more physical.
0: Hmm. Yeah, for sure. So that was definitely something that I wrote down. My note specifically was just how you were explaining words like microaggressions and virtue signaling to your mother. And again, your mom obviously being in different uh, generation. So the issues that we have faced, like the roots are the same, but the way we view them and the way that we address them look different, like perhaps like the 60s, 70s, versus what, with the 2000s, the 2010s, 2020s. Do you know what I mean?
1: Mm -hmm. And now we have terminology for it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the word, I mean, virtue signaling, all all of these phrases and these terms are pretty new. No one was saying virtue signaling back then. So just even her hearing these terms, blackfishing, I think just came out in 2013 maybe. So that's why she wasn't aware of what I was even talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, in your book,
0: you obviously talk about, in quotations, post-racial America. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do you feel, and I know you can't think for everyone, but why do you feel like we are still having these problems that we're facing, but people are still with their heads in the sand thinking that this is post-racial
1: America? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, for people who aren't experiencing the worst conditions are the people who believe that we're living in post-racial America. Um, So I'm mostly speaking to white people or various non-black people, um, thinking that, okay, well, we've had a first black president. Right now we have a black VP. The best tennis player is a black woman. The best gymnast is a black woman. And really from the outside looking in, if you're not a black woman, it looks like, oh, black women are thriving. They're winning Oscars. They're winning Emmys she's the first black woman to do this. Someone just read a poem at the inauguration, et cetera. Um, but then when you look at the conditions of the modern black woman, not black woman, nothing has changed. Um, I write about how when my mom was pregnant with me, I was born in 95, um, the maternal mortality rate for a black woman at the time was four times greater than um, white women. And today it is still exactly four times greater, you have a four times greater chance of dying during childbirth than white women. So it doesn't matter so much that Simone Biles is a gymnast or that we have these, uh, is the best gymnast, that we have these wins and triumphs. Um, our conditions are not changing. It's just the way that maybe we're being perceived in the media if we're of a social stat, a certain status is changing.
0: Right. Right. And actually going back to what you said about when your mom was pregnant with you. Um that's another note that I have so we can just go ahead and get into that. We talked you talked about your her experience as um I forget if she had a condition or something but can you tell us more about how you just before you were even born you were slapped with that label that we all end up getting at some point the strong your dog, your baby's. A, she's a female, strong black female. Like you hadn't even mm-hmm. been thinking about the womb, sis. You still, you still up in here in the cocoon, you're not even yeah. fresh out of the yet. And you're already a strong black woman. Like, can we talk about yeah. that?
1: Yeah, that story is crazy. Um, yeah. So my mom, she had me when she or she was pregnant with me at 43. I think I was born when she was 44. So that was her condition is that she, you know, had a higher risk of everything just because she was an older woman, um, having a baby and. The concerns that she had with me um, having to have a C-section, me possibly having Down syndrome, um, these other concerns that she had, her doctor, um, who was not Black at the time, let her know that, you know, the baby is going to be fine. Like, we have the best of luck with Black, you know, Black babies, Black girl babies are strong. And so, and there was no medical research or, you know, scientific Um, knowledge behind that and that is just like this belief in medicine and and it speaks to a lot of medical misinformation um, about black people that we have a higher pain threshold that we can you know go without it and that leads to neglect and a lack of support in medical settings which leads to the higher maternal mortality rate like it, it just goes to show that an unconscious bias while people like to think of these as biases and microaggressions they have a macro result a macro effect if it's killing black women who um during childbirth then how micro is that aggression how micro is that belief if it's resulting in death and violence and suffering and harm
0: when while she was in it and she heard that you were a strong black female versus now that you you know Mm -hmm. in her
1: ear just kind of like educating her does she have like has there been a shift in her perspective? There has, my mom has read the book and that is when a huge shift came in her perspective and me just talking to her about that and making her realize that that was not okay. But at the time, I mean, my mom just took, as a lot of people would probably believe during that time, just took that as like, okay, yeah, we are strong. We were able to survive slavery. We were able to do all these things. So maybe genetically, you know, black babies are stronger. Um, and we'll be fine. And that, and that is just such dangerous thinking. But like I said, that type of thinking just results in neglect. And, and the, even outside of um, medical environments, this idea that Black women are strong, can persevere, are resilient, that we should push through some of the most traumatic and um, turbulent type of situations alone without any aid and support is ridiculous. It's, it's just ridiculous. We see other women, non-Black women, receive support and aid, get to be the damsel in distress, um, get to cry, be validated and heard when they are going through very slight issues. And when we are going through something extreme, it is just expected for us to, as MLK said, like lift ourselves up from our bootstraps about everyone, like be able to just handle and take care of things ourselves.
0: Yeah, I see that. Like some of the things you were saying, like I see that in my life. And that's, again, I'm still in this process of healing, which is going to be a lifelong journey. Honestly, I feel like, you know, because there's always going to be something, but just feeling like it's so hard for me to ask for help. It is so hard for me to ask for help. I have been just my entire life. I have. I feel like I've been conditioned to believe just based on my experiences and the way I, I was raised and the environment I was in as a child. Like i Black women, we don't ask for help. Like, I don't ask for help. For me to do that, I got to be like, it's got to be the like Armageddon. You know what I mean? Like, or just something super, super. And even when I do make that ask, I feel guilt. I feel shame. I feel embarrassment because I feel like you should have it together already. What's wrong with you? You should, you should be better than that. You know what I'm saying? Like just all these little harmful digs at my spirit. Because in my mind I had this belief that I'm still trying to break through that uh, I should be able to do it all. Because mm-hmm. that's what black women do. We need to push through. We always push through with a strong everything.
1: You know? Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. you ever deal with that? Yeah, one thing that I wish I had touched on in my book that I became more started researching more so after I turned in my manuscript was imposter syndrome, which everyone, all types of people go through imposter syndrome. But I think Black women are going through a very niche-specific imposter syndrome because of things like this. Like these stereotypes and these labels that are placed upon us then make us question things that we shouldn't even be questioning. Like you not wanting to ask for help and then turning that into, I should be able to handle this. When maybe a woman of a different race who, whatever it is that you were going through, if she was going through the same thing, would not be thinking that way. And so it creates this imposter syndrome for us that, I mean, it happens even in other situations, like in the workplace. If you are a Black woman and you are not receiving a promotion or a pay increase, but you see white women who work beside you who have the same level of expertise or even less um, receiving promotions, accolades, et cetera, that can give you imposter syndrome when really that's just it's rooted in racism and bias it's not it doesn't really have anything to do with you're not a good worker or you're not good at your job but we internally can turn it into that and it sounds like kind of the thing that you were doing with like the strong thing too like oh I'm not being strong enough when if we look at the grand scheme of things what you were probably going through and how you were handling it compared to other people would be a sign that you are strong
0: what a great little shift that you just gave me like that <laughs> just me being able to keep it together not that there's anything wrong with you know falling to pieces mm-hmm. like there's I'm not I'm just saying how I was in those situations being able to just kind of sort of keep it together even though I was going through all this stuff <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah what an interesting shift but I love the fact that contrary to the narrative that's out there uh external and internalized. We really do not have to be. We were not put here to be the savior. We were not put here to be uh the superhero, strong black woman, Miss Resilient. You know what I'm saying? All these words that are used to de- describe black women um, as if it were a positive, and I guess, sure, those are positive words, I guess, but it doesn't leave room for us to be anything else
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: because there needs to be that. I feel that ebb and flow in your life. No one can be like one thing a hundred percent of the time without it breaking us down.
1: Mm -hmm, And that's what mm -hmm. people don't understand.
0: They don't give us space to be anything
1: but. Mm -hmm. I think black women, we should be able to just be, just exist and decide if if I want to be strong right now then I can be strong and if I want to be soft and weak or ask for help or support you know, I should be able to be that too but there's going to be some expectation that I cannot um, be soft or have help or support And I think um that's what we're really trying to do with these labels. We're realizing they were taught to us as compliments but they're really it's it's really dismissive. It's really like a lot of the times when people have told me I'm strong, is in situations where I needed help. Like when I got laid off from my job um, and all of my coworkers who didn't get laid off and I was the only, one of the only people on the team who got laid off, the only black person on the team. And my coworkers were like, you'll be fine. You'll be resilient. That's not what I wanted at the time. What I wanted was somebody saying, you know, I know somebody who works here. Would you like me to put you in touch? Or, you know, some words of encouragement other than just, it's a dismissal. It's you'll be fine. You'll- you're resilient. And so to me, that's not a compliment. Or I wrote about how like there was this guy I was dating and I was really scared during the time because all this stuff was going on with Black Lives Matter. And there were situations where like Black girls were coming up missing. And I told him I was scared. And he very much just dismissed it by saying, you know, that you shouldn't be afraid of these things. You're a strong Black woman. But I am afraid of these things. And I'm letting you know I'm afraid of these things. And it just goes to show how deep these biases are and these stereotypes are that the way people see us, how we're being perceived by people that I can be asking for help. I can be crying. I can be telling someone I'm scared. And then they meet that with you, sh- you aren't, or you shouldn't be. Wow. Just a whole erasure of a part of your humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And I, th- and I think most of these people don't even realize they're doing it. That That's the point of this book is really so that people can check their relationship with black women and check their biases, because I just think a, a lot of the people who I've written about in this book, which I've kept all anonymous, a lot of these are people who consider themselves liberal, leftist, progressive, have diverse friendship friend groups. These aren't, you know, I, I'm not really friends with conservative, Republican, right-wing people. So these are people who consider consider themselves to be very, you know, accepting, yet I still have something to write about. So how accepting are you, and how progressive are you? If I'm, if I have a book to write about my experiences, I
0: mean, you have a whole like there's, <laughs> yeah, you have a whole book here. Um, yeah, that says a lot. And I feel like a lot of Black women have a whole. And I know this is not like this book does not define you as far as I know. There's for everything that you wrote in here, and you tried to condense it down based on your life. I'm sure you could have written ten times the amount of this book you know
1: what i mean oh definitely and and to be able to even my biggest struggle with this book or what i was afraid about was some black women reading it and feeling like they don't feel represented in it or they don't feel represented by it and i put that kind of that little disclaimer in the introduction to say you know these are i'm writing about my experience and the experiences of the women who i interviewed there's no way that i can write a book that will Um, completely resonate with every Black woman because our experiences are so diverse. They vary by our skin tone, where we are geographically, um, our hair textures, our featurism, like we are all having very different experiences. But I think that we can relate to, you know, the overall conditions of what we're going through, maybe not all to the same extent, but I think the topics at large are relatable.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, a lot of things jumped out in your book. One thing, there's two things that I really want to talk about um, before we go. One of them is your experience. You were dating this guy. I think he was white. Mm-hmm. I think this was the 2000s. I'm not even sure, but I think you said you were at your house watching videos or something like that. Yes. Yes. And you can <laughs> tell the story much better than I. but I want to talk about this just briefly. So, the whole of privilege and body types and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, this was a guy I was dating at the time, and we and he was white, he was European, so he wasn't even um, American. And I mentioned this because I mentioned that I went to his home country, and like I'll get into the story. So basically, um, we were watching the music video. It was the City Girls. I think it was City Girls and Cardi B. I forgot the name of the song, um, but the music video they were twerking on this boat. And I just remember me and my friends feeling like very empowered by this video, just feeling very liberated. And not, I don't know, twerking is fun to do just in the mirror sometimes. Let your, you know, it's it's a form of dance. I cannot of people, twerk. I'm just letting you know, I can, I can move a little something.
0: But okay, I but twerk. just something, just
1: to let <laughs> loose. And so, and he was so disgusted by this music video. And he was like, I just think this is so ghetto and ratchet. And it's so sexual. And he even said something like, twerking is basically like, a it looks like a mating call. And I just, I mean, this was the this was really the first time that I got to really see him for who he is. We are not together anymore. And I was, in the moment I was shocked because I was like, how can you think this way? Say this stuff about black women to a black woman, feel this way about black women and then still date a black woman. Um, and it made me think of the times where I had gone to his home country and we had gone dancing or gone to a club and he was like, oh, you should twerk or you should dance kind of to show off like I have this black American girlfriend who knows how to do a dance that you guys don't really know how to do. And so I had asked him, I was like, well, what is the difference between me and these girls dancing? Or I remember he and I had watched the Victoria Secret fashion show and backstage the models were twerking or doing whatever. And the difference was the type of body um, that I have versus Cardi B and the city girls. And that's what I mean to go into that Black women we can all be the same race but have very different experiences and because I'm in a slim body which um under white european beauty standards is more acceptable less hypersexualized this dance wasn't as sexual on me in his opinion as it was when these other women were presenting it and that was just eye opening to a lot of things it was eye opening to someone can date a Black person and claim to love a Black person and still have very deep biases about Black people and Black women. Um, So that definitely changed the way I vet partners uh, moving forward. And as you guys can see, that relationship didn't last either. Um, But then it also let me know of like the niche privilege that I have as a Black woman, which I used to only think of a privileged Black woman as somebody who is skin or biracial um or has 2c is 2c even a 3a whatever curl oh, pattern yeah <laughs> and so you know but it's like no there's so many there's futurism there there are body types there's texturism there's so many things that can contribute to like the individual privileges you might have
0: oh okay so you're Space wasn't always made for our perspective, so NPR's new collection is necessary as it celebrates the richness of the Black experience. Here a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. Feeling more grounded and relaxed is Black Girl Peace for me. And so I really need that while doing things like... Shampoo by the way if you have hard water or buildup I detangle I smooth in a little of the way anti-frizz cream then shingle in my natural gel my hair is frizz free it's hydrated and it's cute for days love sleek styles Way's anti-frizz cream works as a heat protectant up to 450 degrees as well Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to theouai. dot com and enter promo code Self Care for fifteen percent off any product. That's theouai. dot com. Promo code Self Care. Now you're schooling me. I'm, mm-hmm. I know I've heard the term futurism, but I have no idea what the hell that even means. When you said it, what is futurism?
1: Yeah, so futurism has more so to do with your features. If you have finer features or finer features. I don't even like the term finer um, features that fall closer to European beauty standards. Maybe it's a smaller nose, smaller lips. Um, same thing like with texturism, a light, a softer curl pattern um, with colorism would be skin tone. So there are all these different parts that can result in privileges um, all within the black race, I would say.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm sitting here thinking like what would I have, that would be privilege. You know what I mean? hmm It's in this Black body. I feel like we all do have different privileges. I think, actually, I can. my my The way I can actually use my body is definitely a privilege. Like, just being able to walk, talk, hear. Being
1: able-bodied.
0: Ab- ableism or able-bodied, yeah. That is definitely mm-hmm. a privilege. So, yeah, you're right. Like, we do have these different experiences based on what we how we how we perceive ourselves how we are perceived in the world how we move things like that um yeah that was just very shocking to me for him to even come out of his mouth and mm-hmm. say things. but really I guess I shouldn't have been shocked you know what I mean mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. I was. like I know yeah. how you felt because you were in that experience and you're dating this person who you thought was a safe person for for you a black woman
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the conversation really just let me know that there was a lot of educating that would have to happen for that relationship to be able to continue. Because then there was this woman on Netflix, I think her name was Lexi Pantera, mm-hmm. who I wrote about, who was a white woman who was on a Netflix show about people who started their own business and she started a twerk out business mm-hmm. and basically did like twerking boot camps. And I said, So, what's the difference between her and Cardi B and City Girls if this woman is twerking? online on tv and everything too and he was like well the difference is like she turned it into a business she turned it into something positive and in my opinion um Cardi b and city girls that's their business as well that's part of their music video that's how they're making money from these streams so it really just the fact that he was still able to always find a way to make it okay on this white woman or in a slim body but not okay on cardi b and make and um city girls and couldn't see that it was rooted in a bias that he had for curvy black women that he had for what he considered stereotypical black women yeah totally that
0: makes me feel like black bodies as we know this is not a new thought here that i'm having but black bodies in one way or another they're a threat
1: Mm -hmm. they're a threat yeah definitely um I feel like, I mean, when I think of adultification bias, I think of black bodies as a threat that no matter what age you are as a black person, as a black kid, you are being perceived older than you are. Um, you know, adultification bias begins as early at the age of five. And so the fact that little black kids are being treated like they're older, um, it's just insanity to me. Like it's a child at five years old. It's just, it's just even crazy to like see someone who's, Think of a five year old and think of that somebody could make them older in their perception.
0: Hmm. yeah, I saw a video, and I try my best not to watch videos when a black person is the main character because these videos really affect me. they really mm-hmm. affect but I watched a video, I think it was a a little boy, possibly. Uh, whomever, it was a black child, let's just say that, probably around seven, I guess. And they were basically handcuffed, like the police actually came to the school. I think he had a temper tantrum or something. I can't remember remember the specifics, but they literally handcuffed this seven, six, seven-year-old child and terrorized him terrorized him. This is a child that does not understand. This is not like an adult. We have a different view on life. We're older. Our brains have matured more. We can kind of, we can understand like different concepts and, and and things, but we're talking about a six or seven year old child that is handcuffed, put in a police car um, for this interaction at school. And it just, it just broke me down in such a way because our children are adultified for their bodies, just for different reasons. And it's it's it just, it scares me that our kids even today are still going through this. And this has been a pattern, a part of our history for
1: years. Yeah, and and that's the point of the book is to show like, yeah, we do not, we cannot claim that we live in a post-racial society when the stats are still this prevalent, you know? These things are all still happening. They have continued to happen. They aren't as blatant as before, just because we're not walking around and seeing whites only signs anymore um, doesn't mean that things are not occurring. It's very systemic. It's online. It's camouflaged. Um, But if you just research it and look at the numbers, again, the fact that with medical investments and advancements, why is the number still the same from when my mom was pregnant to if I decide to get pregnant today? for black women dying during childbirth like it, it just goes to show that how much have we evolved as a society and to claim that because we've had a black president what what happened when we had a black president what you know yes we had someone who was black and elected into president and then what happened after that people were so upset about it that what happened who became our president next how did they treat that family? What did we see written about Michelle Obama? The caricatures drawn about her. So it's it's not so much just to be able to say, oh, this was a win. Look at the public response. Look at the response after the win. Simone Biles might be the greatest gymnast, but look at what she goes through. She had to leave the Olympics at one point because she was just so stressed. And they were, um, there were certain tricks that she was, yeah, tricks that she was able to perform that other people weren't able to perform and they banned those tricks. Like. It can't just stop with, she's the greatest gymnast, so Black women are thriving. She's the greatest gymnast, and because she's a Black woman, this is why they were trying to stop her from being the greatest gymnast. Like, it's,
0: yeah. Yeah, for sure. When you said that about Michelle Obama, my body just got flooded with this wave of just anger, because I do remember back to those things. Ah, Yeah. We don't even have the time to dive into all that, because I know.
1: Conversations- <laughs>
0: I just got this wave of just emotion over my body. It gave me chills, actually. Um, I did want to talk about, because I know that a lot of people that, are a lot of women that listen to this podcast, uh, they are either nine-to-fivers or they're working in an office, they're employed by companies, they're going into an office or virtually working every day, still dealing with microaggressions, still dealing with all kinds of office politics and shenanigans. And you wrote about this situation that you had when you were in your... Uh, office job about uh, an account you had with an employee. She was—I forget what she was doing. She was wanting to was she wanting to touch your hair or no? Or was that something else?
1: No, that was someone else. The situation was I did not work at this job. I didn't work on Fridays. I worked Sunday through Thursday, okay. yes. and so on Fridays when they would make a lot of announcements um, for events that would happen and because I would have my work email and my Slack notifications off. I didn't want to have them on on my work day on my off day just. To receive like some invites to events and so she was someone who I thought was my friend um, and I asked her if she could you know notify me when if there is an event that happened you know occurs on a day that I'm not there and she just kind of blew up in these messages these slack messages and was like that's not my responsibility blah 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 and I was like okay yeah that's fine and I was like is everything okay and I felt like because she was blowing up I think it's very hard. I think I'm very careful when I am dealing with communicating with white women in the workplace already, because I'm just like, I know if, if something goes away, this woman does not like when it comes down to HR or our boss, our manager, they are going to take side with them. And so I felt like I needed to bring it down because she was bringing it so high. So instead of just like letting the conversation end, I was really trying to save myself and just like, okay is everything okay like I was just I just want you to know I was just asking for this was not really asking like for a lot mm-hmm. and that triggered something in her and she sent me this message saying um I told you I'm having a bad day um don't test me or something and I was like I was gonna let it go but again it when it if, if it had been with another black employee or probably just anyone else I would have probably let it go but because it's this white woman I was like She is upset about something. And if someone sees that she's upset at work and asks and decides to ask her why. And she says it has something to do with the conversation we had, doesn't matter what those Slack messages said, they are gonna go with her story. So I need to go ahead and bring forward this thing that I really don't even care about to my boss because I'm more worried about what her reaction is gonna be. Because I do believe white people use HR like it is their best friend. They report everything and report everything to the manager and the boss. And it makes like it makes you feel like you have to tiptoe around the workplace because a lot of these things, I feel like that are being reported are things that are just like not falling under white professionalism standards mm-hmm. or not as serious as it needs to be. And so my boss ended up calling us into a meeting and it was in this meeting because she was, um, I don't know, having to take responsibility for something that she did um I guess she did not like that and so she blew up in this meeting and you know was cursing and was yelling I quit and was calling me was saying I was aggressive with her in the slack messages when she's the one who told me not to test her and her messaging was aggressive and so yeah long story short this was kind of like a Karen situation is what I refer to it as a situation where like it's a combination of the white the use of white tears where This woman was in the wrong, but then started crying so that everything that had happened prior just went away with her tears and the manager started comforting her and all of a sudden the blame was on me. And I had to really draw our boss back in and be like, wait a minute, can we remember why we got called in here? Like, just because she's crying. And it was crazy just to see in front of me just like how quickly, like, I can lose any type of power when I am in a situation with a white woman, no matter what. Whether I'm if I'm the victim and she's the aggressor, as soon as she cries or as soon as she starts doing whatever to get that empathy from the other person, it's like it is, you know, my whole story is dissolved. It's gone. And so that was very eye-opening to me. And so now I work from home, I work remotely, I rarely am ever in an office because I think like a lot of black women, I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with microaggressions in the workplace. Um, I don't want to be code switching, tiptoeing around, feeling like I have to present a certain version of myself, um, having conversations that are uncomfortable or that I feel are unnecessary. So I just work from home. Mm -hmm. I love that your generation, I guess mine too,
0: but definitely definitely like millennials and what's the generation after you? Is it Gen Gen Z? Gen
1: Z, like y'all not, y'all not, (laughs) respectfully, y'all not (laughs) playing. We are not, because we can't. Like we're just like, you must think I'm silly if I'm going to be going through the same stuff my mom went through in 2023. Like that's, right. and I think that's where that comes from is that we're just at a point where we're like, are you serious? Like, we're still doing this. Like, and and that's where it's kind of just like, we're drawing the line. And I, I think we're luck- lucky to have social media and be able to like talk about these situations so publicly, because when you do, it normalizes these situations. Mm-hmm. So it almost makes it harder to dismiss anything that we're saying because I could tweet about an experience that I'm having and I can wake up the next morning and it could have 400,000 retweets or likes on it. And so while people are just like, that's just social media, that means 400,000 people resonated with that, agreed with that, or people will be starting a conversation about it. So it's like, you can't tell me this was in my head or you can't tell me, you know, this is something made up when all these other people also agree or have the same experience. We're able to, come together and commune in a way that previous generations weren't able to um, unless you were quite literally in the same city and congregating.
0: Yeah, for sure. Because thinking back, I I stepped out of the nine to five back in 2019, which is a whole story for itself with a lot of trauma and tears. But um, yeah, it was hard. But I love the fact that you do like i said millennials and of course my generation too but definitely millennials in the generation after you or generations after you are able to just be like hey <laughs> we ain't doing this no more like the like we tapping out we're not buying into this anymore <laughs> i did because i feel like obviously because of what happened in the previous decades you guys are building upon that that work that has been done for me personally i still I am, I think, the final generation of like the code switching. Am I appropriate tone policing even myself?
1: Mm-hmm. Being
0: very aware of my presence, how I'm saying something, how did that land? Being just being afraid to step on toes in different environments, especially with white people, because obviously I was mm-hmm. working with primarily white people. Just all of that stuff. So that that section really resonated with me, and I'm so mm-hmm. glad that. You wrote about that. And also, like I said, that your generation and beyond, like you guys are just not, that's just not what it's going to be.
1: Well, because we're realizing that it's not benefiting us, I think, as well. Like code switching is a great example. When I was first coming into my early career, I was code switching because I was coming from my parents' house. And that's kind of just what I was taught and saw. But then when I came into my own pretty quickly after, it was like, um, whether I'm code switching or not, I still did not get this job. Or when I got the job, I still did not get the the pay raise. I still didn't get the promotion. So why am I doing all this? If like y'all are not, it's not leading to anything. I feel like if anything, code switching is actually for the dominant group because I mean, code switching is known to be when you're changing your linguistics or your appearance or your behavior um, Mm -hmm. as an underrepresented person to fit into around a dominant group to fit into the dominant group. Um, I just think it makes the dominant group feel whatever, less, um, I think it, it's, it's you making yourself smaller to make the dominant group feel comfortable. And I think that's all code switching really does is it, it makes the white people around me feel comfortable um, because the stereotypes that they already decided about me are not really coming up in our presence. Like, oh, we thought maybe she's going to be loud or she's going to be disruptive or she's going to be this, but I'm code switching. So it's like, okay, thank God she's not, I, and, and it makes them comfortable. It doesn't result in anything for me. Like, it does not result in respect. It doesn't result result in a promotion. And I think we're realizing, or we're seeing, like, a lot of these respectability politics and things that we've been taught. Okay, you need to wear your hair this way in the office. You need to blah, blah, blah. Or what? We're still being paid the lease. Like, it's just, like, we're realizing it's not working. So we're not doing it anymore. Like, we are getting our braids this summer, and we are going to be in the office. Like, and because... Yeah. No, because my hair care routine is more important than (laughs) Sarah or Sally looking at me, wondering like, why is she wearing braids? I'm still going to be paid less than her anyway. So I think that's kind of like what's happening is we're just like, we're not doing things that aren't benefiting us. That's Mm -hmm. just benefiting them. That is so
0: powerful. And I love that you are standing in that power. We've had a very dynamic conversation in such a short amount of time. Are there, is there like maybe a piece of advice that you could give to someone that has some of the experiences that you've had Mm -hmm. and they just don't know how to stand in their power you know, mm-hmm. is there maybe a little bit of advice that you can give someone, regardless actually of the age, regardless of the age, mm-hmm. just out someone that is like resonating with this conversation, but she's like still scared to, to mm-hmm. own my power. Is there anything that you could tell that person that's listening?
1: Yeah, I think to figure out what your radical self-care routine is. I think when we think of self-care, we think of a bubble bath and a massage and these things that may make you feel a little good in the moment but don't actually change your conditions whereas radical self-care can be ending relationships um Mm -hmm. having deciding you know i'm only having black and brown women or black women in my social circle or i'm not dating interracially anymore unless the person fits these things these specific things or or i'm not dating any man unless he fits these things like i'm just not you know I'm rebuking the strong Black woman uh, trope and title. When someone says that to me, I'm going to let them know and do not refer to me as such. Um, It could be you're working at a job and there's the option to be remote. That's me. I could go into my office every day right now and I'm choosing to work remote because that is my self-care. Like I know when I go into a lot of my experience has been when I work in predominantly white offices and spaces, I experience microaggressions micro assaults, micro invalidations, all these things. And so, and nobody can do that to me from my kitchen. And so I just thought, and that's my self, my self care. I'm not coming in. And so I think figuring out, you know and that's a privilege itself, not everyone works remote but figuring out what in your specific routine what radical self care can look like. And it's radical because it's what is not expected of black women. We're expected to take care of everyone just as practicing self-care is radical itself because we are caring for ourselves. We are putting ourselves first. And only can you care for your community and care for others if you do not burn out and care for yourself first.
0: I love that. And I want to go back a second because I want to make sure that people heard what you said about that strong black woman. What was that wording again or that language? Like if someone says, oh, you're strong, you're a strong woman, whatever. What did you say? What does that language mean? Oh, to rebuke that? Yeah, like what did you? What, what would you say? Like if I said to you, oh, you're strong, you're a strong black woman, you can handle it.
1: What would you say to me? Um, I would say I can, but it doesn't always mean that I should and that I will. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of things I can handle. And I do take pride in knowing that I can. I do take pride in knowing that I am independent and I can take care of myself, but that doesn't mean I want to. And it doesn't always mean that I will.
0: I love it. And also, you said, don't call me that.
1: Mm-hmm. And don't call me that. Don't call um, no. And I tell people that now. I mean, it's very rare. I think all of my friends, especially my white <laughs> friends, are pretty on board. Yeah. We're <laughs> like, not calling her this and we're not calling her that. And we're right. not asking her for any advice about race. We are going to Google. They know, do not. Um, but yeah, I think like, really just taking a step back. Like there was a situation um, towards the end of summer, 2020, when I was just getting to a point where I was burned out from educating people. And mm-hmm. I just went ahead and, and self can I just told people, I said, don't ask me anything. You know how to Google stuff. Like you're an adult. Like you are literally an adult. Like you do not need me to educate you. Like, yes, I'm educating through this book, but like some of these questions were like, what movies, you know, when that was happening, what movies should I watch? What books should I read? I cannot hold your hand through figuring out what, like how to Google books on race, movies on race. That yeah. is that is once again, asking black people to do labor, unpaid labor, take the time to get to to help you, to be, you know, to help the um, white person out of whatever it is. And it's like, if I can learn about my own history, you too can learn about your own history. Cause I'm not learning black history from, from white people. And Black history is white history. Um, So if I can learn about my ancestors and my people and my position in the world and how I navigate the world, then they can too.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, I want to thank you because you, I feel like the person that listens to this podcast episode, they're going to walk away feeling... Very seen, obviously, but also hopefully they walk away feeling more empowered than they did before they listened to the episode because of the things that you shared that align with, I guess, just power and self-care and owning your truth, prioritizing yourself in ways that make sense for you. So I thank you for that. Um As we wrap up, where can we find you? And also, where can we buy... Your book, which is absolutely amazing, In, in Our Shoes.
1: Yeah, um, In Our Shoes is available at all major bookstores. Um, also some indie bookstores as well. If your indie bookstore or, lo- or local bookstore doesn't have it, you can request it. Um, but anything, Barnes & Noble, The Strand, McNally Jackson, Target, Amazon, it's available all over. Um, I am Brianna Holt on Instagram and on Twitter. I am Brianna in Holt for Nicole. Awesome. And my website Sorry, yeah, my website is it. briannaholt.me.
0: Brianna Love that. Love that. So make sure that you buy this book. It will change your life. Um, and also make sure that you follow uh, Brianna, her work, her journey online as she continues to share and educate um, in the way that she does. You will not regret it. I want to thank you so much for your time today. It has been so awesome. It was a pleasure to just be in community with you today. And have this conversation.
1: I'm so appreciative of it. So I just wanna thank you so much. Thank you. I'm appreciative of you. Thank you for letting me be on your platform.
0: And that is it for this week's episode of the Brown Girl Self Care Podcast. I wanna again give thanks to my guest, Brianna Holt. I will be sure to put her information in the show notes. So please be sure to support her by picking up a copy of her book visiting her website, as well as following her on social media. If you have any questions, by the way, feel free to connect with me. You can email me at connect at com. Again, that's connect, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, at browngirlselfcare.com. If you haven't had a chance to do so, be sure to give your girl a five-star rating and review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you uh, are able to listen to the show. And very last thing, I want to give a special shout out to my Patreon community. Thank you so very much for your support. Thank you so much for listening to the Brown Girl Self-Care Podcast. Again, my name is Brie. I'll see you next Monday. Have a blessed week.